Diakonasa Cops Calling is sponsored by Luciano's Woodworking. Luciano's Woodworking is owned and operated by Carlos Luciano Jr., and he works with each of his customers to create hand-carved wooden plaques, signs, wall hangings, and more. Currently, he is working on a wall hanging for Diakonasa Cops Calling, and I am super excited to see it once it's completed. He's worked with me to meet the style, the colors, the print, and the frame I want for this project. You can see his talented work. Just check out Luciano's Woodworking on Facebook and Instagram. Whether you want a welcome sign for your home, a plaque to display challenge coins, a hand-carved piece of your favorite sports team, a personalized stovetop cover, retirement plaques for those in the military or in law enforcement, wall art for rooms in your house, or any other similar project, he can do it. Carlos is a full-time police officer, a husband, and a father, but he enjoys kicking up the dust with this side hobby. He's a busy guy, but you will not be disappointed as you patiently wait for him to complete your project. So check out Luciano's Woodworking right now on Facebook and Instagram. See his work, share his work, share him on social media, and then let him know what project you'd like him to start for you. This podcast is for grown-ups only. Some of the content may not be appropriate for little ears like mine. But your family doesn't know what you're doing. They don't know if somebody's trying to hurt you. They don't know if you're riding in on a robbery call. And they worry. If, if you grew up in my neighborhood, you might have a right to make a comment on that. But don't tell me what my old neighborhood needs while you're sitting up in a nice, pretty, you know, very safe community. And Welcome to Diakonasa Cops Calling. I'm your host, Anthony Weaver, and we are going to be diving right into part two of my conversation with retired Chief Keith Sadler, but make sure you stick around after our conversation for this week's Cue the Dip winner and some of my thoughts on leadership in law enforcement. Okay, here is part two of my conversation with retired Chief Keith Sadler. I mean, those were the kind of guns you got off the street then. By the end of the 80s, you were getting nine millimeters and 45s and Uzis and, you know, high-end, uh, you know, assault rifles. I mean, all of that changed changed everything. And right. The police got them too. That's why I cringe when I hear people say, oh, the police don't need militarized weapons. Like, you know, who are you kidding? Right. Uh, the, the criminals have AK-47s. They have high-power rifles. I mean... You know, you're not you're not going to go in with a 38, you know, Smith and Wesson like the old days, right? Yeah, it's it it's incredible to listen to you talk. Um, you know, just just uh, again, 1981 isn't that long ago, but to know how much has changed since then, <laughs> quite a lot. And even since I got on the job, because I remember um, it was probably 2001, 2002. Uh, I was on this call, and I don't know if you ever ever met uh, Sergeant Weber. So Sergeant Weber is the dad of an officer that still works for the right. department, and uh, um, he was he was this salty like sergeant <laughs> when I got on the job, and I was half terrified of this guy. <laughs> but he was a great sergeant because I never forgot like my very first vehicle pursuit. Um, he came back to the police station. I had no idea what I was doing. None uh, with the paperwork and stuff. <laughs> and I remember he took time to like explain, Hey, this is what you need to do. This is what you need to do and how to take care of it and everything. But, um, 
it was no joke on the street. And I remember this one call, we got a call for a mom calls in to say her, her daughter is being held against her will at this house uh, down on Easton Avenue. So we get down there and this guy is, he's all coked up. He's just pouring sweat and we see him through the windows and he's, (laughs) he actually has a hammer and nails and he's nailing windows shut, like literally nailing them shut. And uh, so I'm thinking to myself, well, we'll probably, we'll probably end up calling the third team for this and get like, you know, special uh, get SWAT team out here for whatever. Nope. This uh, uh, salty Sergeant Weber. He's like, get the fire department out here. We're going to ax the door down. I was like, all right, let's go. And I just never, it was probably two, three in the morning. He's standing out there in the middle of East End Avenue and he's like, open the door. And, and uh, this guy's like, you know, nailing windows shut and, Fire department shows up. We ax the door down. I remember being the first one in. This guy comes running down the stairs. We get him in the custody. Nothing, you know. But uh, and now there is no way you would you yeah. would you would definitely be calling like third team or at least making a call to yeah. him, being like, hey, is this something you guys want to come take care of? We don't, you know. It might have been something patrol took care of, but yeah. back then there was no even phone call. It was just like, hey, no, patrol, I mean, let's handle it. Yeah, very. Uh- Usually, your your patrol uh, yeah. officers and you had those experienced supervisors, and they just know how to get yeah. things done. Yeah, and we did, and we got it done. So, yeah. So, what do you think? You know, going through going through those things, like, what do you think is the main thing that just helped you, like afterwards, just deal with the you know the investigation? Uh, and I guess back then you probably weren't off off um, you know on paid leave as long as officers are now, but you know, anything that really helped you just get through those, those things and, and be yeah, okay coming I, out the other you end? You know, your, your coworkers are the best. And then, you know, my first partner on the job, uh, the guy who broke me in as a rookie, uh, even to this day, I still call him to bounce things off. I mean, it's one of my closest friends in life. Uh, and, you know, Tony broke me in on the job and he just had a way of, he, he has a real monotone kind of voice and a calming effect when he sees like maybe something's bothering you or he was, he's really good at putting things in perspective. And again, the coworkers that the, the thing they used to do in Philly, if you got involved in a shooting, they would send you down to the roundhouse, the headquarters to sit there and file paperwork. And it was almost like it was a punishment. You're, You're sitting there doing nonsense for eight hours. You're not around your coworkers. And finally by, I guess the late 80s, somebody with some real common sense said, you know, this has an adverse effect on officers. What you need to do, yes, you take them off the street, you send them to, you know, the debriefing group if they need counseling, but you need to put them back in their unit or their district. And they can work inside, and basically they're around the people they know. And, you know, you can always find something to do. Uh, with you know working you don't mind doing something or helping them out with uh, arrest paperwork whatever and usually they know that you know you're trying to get back in the fold and so it's not a punishment and i know they still do that but yeah i mean it's common practice they take you off the street until the district attorney clears it and they make sure that you're mentally and physically ready to come back because you know, there's some people that even in a righteous shooting, they never come back to the job. I mean, yeah. I, when I was part of that group, sometimes they would have you talk to an individual when they thought they were in dire need. 
And there was a guy who uh, he was off duty with his partner, and two guys came in, and I don't know if they were trying to rob the bar or whatever, and they end up shooting the one officer right in the bar. His partner chases the guy, and they get in a shootout, and the officer puts the guy down. And he just struggled with it, not only having to shoot the bad guy, but the fact that his partner got killed in front of him. Mm-hmm. And uh, they called me uh, late one night and said, you know, you got to talk to this guy. I mean, he's he wasn't suicidal, but he wanted to leave the job. And I must have talked to him for four hours. Yeah. And I wasn't telling him what to do. He'd say, hey, no, I just said, look, you know, you got to work it through. And everybody's here to help you. And he did take advantage of the department uh, helping him. But I think it was about a month or two after I talked to him, they said, no, nah, he... He just he can't he just doesn't want to do it. I mean, they offered him a, a desk job, and he just you know he left. So I mean, every individual's different. There's people that it's not that it doesn't affect them, but they put it in perspective. Uh, I mean, after the one with the guy who was a suicide by police, but didn't want to hurt us, I went to see my priest on that one. Yeah. And that was the best because he put it in perspective. And he wasn't a law enforcement guy. Mm-hmm. He just said to me, you know, you're you're in a profession where you're protecting people. And he said, and you have a duty to protect them, but also yourself and your family. Yeah. And he said, you know, he says, we're, and we prayed for, for the deceased. He said, you know, we'll pray for him. But he he was obviously sick and he wanted to die. Unfortunately, he made you guys do it. And they probably, she goes, I know he didn't intentionally think that he was going to cause problems for you guys, but, you know, talking to a, a, a clergy uh, member was a big help. And I walked out of there and I felt fine because I thought, yeah, you know, father's right. <laughs> yeah. I think a lot of times in those situations, just getting like proper perspective and realizing you as the police officer or any of the police officers at the scene are not the reason that happened that the person yeah. made personal decisions um, that had tragic consequences. And, and uh, yeah, so I, I, you know, when I was on the job, any, any time there was a guy that was involved in something like that, um, you know, I always just tried to reach out to him at some point and just be like, Hey, glad you're okay. You know, just give me a call if you ever need to talk about anything and stuff yeah, like that. I mean, it's believe just, me, it's really important. Yeah, yeah, because I, I mean, it it does it affects people all all different oh, yeah. all different ways. So I don't really know how to transition into this next <laughs> part. Um, I really appreciate you sharing those stories because I, I I can tell that some of them aren't the easiest to talk about even even now. Like no, it's, I mean, it's, for for years I wouldn't talk to anybody about them. Okay, a, at all. You know, I just felt like. That's just something that needs to stay in the subconscious. But over the years from being part of debriefings, you find out it's actually better that you do. Right. And for something like a podcast like this that, uh, you know, a lot of your fans are officers, I think that that it does need to be shared because they need to know that if they ever get involved, it's not going to be – you know, there's a process to get through it. And if there's officers that have been involved in it and they can benefit from hearing, you know, how different people handle it, it may, may in fact help them. Yeah. And I think it's also beneficial for the, for the people that listen to the podcast that aren't in law law enforcement because, um, it helps them 
I, I think like in our culture, we, there's so many television shows about cops and stuff. <laughs> and it's, it's almost like there's this thought that the cops are just out there and they want to be involved in these situations. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I, I've never talked to police officers that's like, oh, yeah, man, I, I really hope I get to shoot someone. Yeah. There's a lot of police officers who try to mentally prepare for that and exactly. and stuff. But, um, yeah, and, and you you just never know when it's going to happen. I mean, you could be just yeah. eating lunch one moment and the next moment you're fighting for your life. Yeah. You know? <laughs> um, that's how it usually, that's exactly. And, and you mentioned like TV is a perfect example. One of the slickest shows of the 80s was Miami Vice. And I remember reading this somewhere, and I don't have the accurate figure, but it was high. Somebody had analyzed that show, and I think it had four or five seasons, and they said that Tubbs and and, and Crockett had been involved in something like 400 shootings. <laughs> I mean, you would be mental mesh if you were involved in, in you know that many. And literally, the, you know, when you watch that series on the reruns, Usually the opening scene involved them shooting somebody, and usually the ending scene involved them in a big shootout. Right. And they never did any reports for it. Yeah, no paperwork ever. Their lieutenant would be, I'll expect your report in the morning. I'm thinking, that's not how it works. You don't get to go home and chill out and have a drink. It doesn't work like that. You end up down in internal affairs. Right, for hours. Yeah, it's like, come on. Yeah. But you're right. People think like, I mean, and people mean well, but sometimes folks will say, especially when I used to go speak to groups, and you know, kids, you know, they're very honest. They just ask you, and they'll say, "Did you ever shoot anybody?" And they mean well, but you'd be amazed how many. I know you're not adults that would sit there. Oh, how many shootings have you been involved? And I'm thinking, well, we're here to talk about a problem in your neighborhood, and you're asking me how many people I shot. Right. I mean, I'm thinking you're a little out of focus here, right? And I, I would just politely say, well, I'm not sure that, you know, this is a proper topic to discuss. We're we're here to solve your problem in the neighborhood. And the best thing, other neighbors go, yeah, why are you asking him that question? You know, right. we're here to fix our problem. I go, yeah, yeah. Go, but, you know, people will ask you. Um, but, and I always tell them, it is very, very, very rare. And people make the assumption, oh, well, you know, the shootings happen in the big city. If you look at the honorable men and women that are on the wall in D.C., a lot of them are from rural parts of the country that maybe have three police officers. And you got to remember, you know, when I was in Philadelphia, if you called for that first gun pinch I told you about, you know, I I put my location out and within like five minutes, there were like 15 cop cars there. Right. When you're in some of these places in America, I mean, I met a guy from New Mexico that he told me his sector was like, <laughs> you know, something like a thousand square miles because, you know, he was a sheriff's department. And he said usually his backup wouldn't be from his own department. It would be from like the state police or, you know, some small like township. But, you know, and I said, no, you really, if you, he said, you know, your backup could be 45 minutes away. Yeah. So you think a lot of, and I, and I get really annoyed. I remember watching one of those idiots on television that have, you know, a talk show and late at night on cable. And he's, he's ranting about uh, some officer had written a book and he's making fun of the guy. He goes, oh, he's from some rinky dink police department with like 10 cops. What does he know about danger? I mean, you know, yeah, what has he ever actually done? And I'm thinking, you know, 
What an arrogant ass. I mean, there's yeah. all kinds of men and women on that wall that came from departments that size that were killed in a line of duty. And this guy's mocking this guy writing a book about policing and whatever. And I thought, yeah, you just don't get it. But I'm sure if somebody, you know, stole his Lexus or Mercedes, he'd be on the horn. Oh, yeah. You know, and he wanted want to get his car back immediately. Yep. He'd want the police there immediately. And, exactly. Yeah. And, and uh, I mean, that's a really good point, too. I mean, even, even here in Lancaster, there's some really rural departments. Yeah. And I know, like, I've talked to some state police troopers um, who, you know, depending where they're at in the county, it could be 20, 25 minutes before yeah. they get. That is a lifetime yeah well lancaster county is almost a thousand square miles yeah uh, and people don't realize from one end of the county to the other you could be driving forever yeah (laughs) yeah and and that was one thing i always appreciated about even just working in lancaster city much much smaller urban department than philadelphia but you still always had backup relatively fast it was it was rare that you I mean, I don't personally ever remember a time where, I mean, there were times where it felt like backup was taking forever to get there when you're in a fight and stuff. But I just can't imagine some of these guys in these role departments that, you know, if they get into something, they're they're having to wait, you know, 20, 25 minutes before someone gets there. That's a lifetime. Yeah, that's why I said that guy annoyed me. I'm thinking, listen, you know, when you're in those kind of departments, you have to have survival skills. You have to do a lot of training. You have to be able to defend yourself. Right. You know, I remember meeting a, a cop uh, in Philly that um, he was in the military, but he had been an officer uh, upstate Pennsylvania. I forget what county, but he said he pulled over a, a, a trucker one night just for a minor violation. And the guy seemed all right. And he stepped down from the truck to say, let me get my registration. And uh, he knocked the cop out. He said, uh, I woke up and there were, fortunately, some citizens came by and saw him laying on a rural road by himself, unconscious. And he said, man, I don't remember what happened. He said, but the guy just, you know, he sucker punched him and knocked him out. Yeah. And luckily, I mean, he didn't take his gun. And I mean, it could have been a lot worse. But I remember thinking, yeah, I mean, you're on a desolate highway in the middle of the night. You're literally by yourself. Yeah, so, you're on your own. Yeah, I get it. Uh, and I always tell the guys in Lancaster when I first came up here, I said, listen, d- don't be in awe of every big city cop. I said, <laughs> I work with a lot of cops in Philly that right out of the academy started working inside, went to a special unit and, you know, never had a crime scene, you know. And I said, so not every big city cop is a big city cop. Uh, and I said, and I, I remember telling um, Kent Schweitzer, I said, you know, I watched the way the detective division works a case here. And I said, I I could load all you guys up tomorrow, drive you down to Philly, take you into the captain of homicide and said, hey, here's a lieutenant and like eight detectives. They're yours for the next couple of months. And you guys would be in culture shock for a couple of minutes when you say, whoa, we're in Philadelphia. Oh, my God. And I said, and when you went out on your first case, you would do the same thing down there that you do up here. And those guys down there would realize that you're experienced detectives and they would forget 
that you came from another department and then you would never want to come back. I would never be able to get you back to Lancaster because right. you'd be having too much fun down there. <laughs> you know. And I, I said, I mean that sincerely. I said, you know, um, we might be a smaller city here, but it's just the same dynamic, just a smaller version. It's it's so true. And and uh the rural the rural officers, that guy out there that guy can handle himself by himself. Like he, he has to. Yeah, yeah, he has to. He doesn't have he he does he can't rely on you know his radio all the time to get back up there right. for him. So, I rem- I remember too years ago I was um, I was in Jamaica on like a missions mm-hmm. trip through my church and I met a, a an officer out there who, mm-hmm. so I don't quite understand their their structure, but he was in charge of I think they have like basically three like police departments and he was in charge of one okay. of them out there. And, um, he had been, a, when he was a patrol officer, he had been on a domestic call up in the mountains oh, and the guy boy. had a machete and oh like, my God. like hacked him to pieces. <laughs> mm. And he had, he actually was missing like an wow. arm and, uh, that's scary. And, and some locals loaded him up on a pickup truck and took him down wow. the mountain and got him help. That's how he survived. Wow. There was no one. He was all alone. Yeah, that's what I mean. When you study policing in the rest of the world, right? Uh, things are a lot different. Yeah, I, you know, it, yeah, and it, it it really is. Uh, it's crazy. So, well, I did want to ask you because I I think your perspective is interesting. Having started on the job in 1981, working all the way up to 2019 on the job, how things have changed and um, the experiences you've had how how do you think police work has changed um negatively and positively yeah well let's let's start with the positive um it's very easy for old timers like me i mean remember when i was a young cop all the old heads thought we didn't know what we were doing and we weren't real cops and every generation does the same thing but i will say this i i like the generation of especially when i came to lancaster uh, one, the officers were either from the military or they had some college or they, they'd finished college. Um, I always felt smarter, more tech savvy. Uh, and what I really liked, I mean, in my era, it was a very male-dominated profession. And, um, you know, there were guys who wives didn't know that they had extra days off like every six weeks. You know, it was if you told your wife that, so you tell your wife about those group days off. Like that's when you go and do whatever you feel like. I'm like, well, you know, that's not right. Right. And um, they just didn't involve their family in any kind of decision at all. I mean, if your captain called you in and said, Hey, uh, you know, I'd like to put you in plain clothes. What do you think about that? You literally had about five seconds to give an answer. If you were like contemplating, you go, yeah, get out of my office. You, you took too long to give me an answer. And if you said, well, you know, I want to go home and talk to my wife about it, he would throw you out of the office. And I like the fact that officers now involve their family more. And I've, when I was in Lancaster, if we were offering somebody and they said, yeah, you know, I have to go talk to my family, I think that's a good thing. And that's the way it should be because – it's easy for us when we're at work. We know what we're doing. We know that maybe you're sitting there, you know, eating lunch with with somebody uh, or you're on a minor call, uh, but your family doesn't know what you're doing. They don't know if somebody's trying to hurt you. They don't know if you're riding in on a robbery call, and they worry. So 
it is important, you know, that you discuss that with your family and involve them in the decision. So, and I think if you're family oriented as a police officer, whether even if you're not married, don't have a spouse, but you're grounded with maybe your parents, if you're a younger officer or even your grandparents, there has to be some network there. And that's what helps. And like I said, in my generation, you know, after work, guys would go hit the bars and they drink all night and come home half drunk. And, you know, you wonder why the divorce rate was so high. Right. Um, but, you know, nowadays, you know, I see, you know, younger officers, you know, they might get together sometimes, but they don't make it a daily habit. And because their alcoholism was very high in the police department when I was a younger cop. Because that guys, you know, they, they self-medicated. Right. Um, but that those are some of the positive things. And I think the generation of military coming into policing now is just like the generation that broke me in. You know, they're used to a regiment. They, they have respect. Um, they're willing to do the job. So I think those are the positive aspects. The negative, you know, the sad part in it's like peaks and valleys. Uh, mm-hmm. When I was growing up in the late 60s, early 70s, in any urban city, it was fashionable to hate the police, you know. They called them pigs. That's the first time police were referred to as pigs. Uh, you know, even in the music, you know, and then you hear classic rock songs and talking about pigs and all of that stuff. Um, and by, you know, by the time I came on in 1981, it was okay to be a p- police officer again. In fact, some of the hoodlums in my old neighborhood heard I was going to the academy. And they were like, and I'm thinking, uh-oh. And they're like, hey, man, I hear you uh, joined the cops. I'm like, yeah. Oh, that's good, man. You know, congratulations. I'm like, wow, what's well, bizarre. I mean, you know, <laughs> uh, <laughs> you know, I could be the person locking them up one day. Right. And, you know, so nobody, uh, nobody thought ill of me. I mean, um, Right after I, uh, right when I first got on, I was living at my grandmother's because my granddad had just passed away and she was living by herself. So I was living with her and her neighborhood was a little edgier than mine. But, you know, even the hoodlums from that neighborhood knew what I did for a living. Nobody ever slashed my tires. Nobody ever bothered my grandmother, you know. So, but, you know, if I was a young officer, um, and living on my grandmother's street in this day and age, I would never wear my uniform home. I wouldn't have any identifiers on my car that showed I was a police officer because that same neighborhood now, I probably would get my tires slashed or they break my grandmother's windows out. Yeah. So, I mean, that's that's really sad because when I think of Mr. Jennings, you know, everybody respected the fact that we had a police officer living on I mean, it made us feel safe. Why do you think that's changed? Well, there's a lot of factors. I mean, again, you know, it's easy to to blame everything on the media, but guess what? I mean, um, there's a lot of information that the media could put out about officer-involved shootings and data and statistics, but they'll let the Internet run rampant. I mean, uh, back to the Washington Post. I mean, they publish that almost every year, the officer-involved shootings for the whole United States. And they're actually given accurate data. And they say, well, on the average, and it's that trend's been for at least 20 years, mm-hmm. police shoot fatally about 1,000 people a year. That's for all 50 states. 
that 600,000 plus police officers and 1,000 people get shot to death by police. So, um, and to break down racially, um, it's usually 300 to 400 are black and um, the rest are mostly white. And there's very few Asians or, or Hispanics in that, in that um, statistic. But, you know, intelligent people that I know will tell me, oh, uh, the police kill like 400 um, unarmed people a year. Or they'll tell you they kill 10,000 people a year. And I'm like, listen, okay, you don't have to take my word for it. You don't have to take the Justice Department's word for it. You don't have to take the state police data for it, the FBI's. Go right to the Washington Post. The Washington Post never impressed me as a police-friendly newspaper, but to their credit, they print that data every year, but it kind of gets ignored. Like, nobody really wants to hear that. They like the other narrative that the cops are running rampant and shooting everybody to death and everybody's unarmed, and that's also not true. Uh, It's a very low number of citizens that are shot unarmed. And then there's a variety of reasons why that's happened. Right. But uh, some of the things I've heard, politicians even saying, uh, I think it was out in Ohio a few years ago, where they were trying to pass something in their town where the police can only fire their weapon if they're fired on first. Right. Well, that's a ridiculous concept. If you wait for somebody to shoot first, you might not get a chance to fire back. But that's the mentality, and it's very fashionable to hate the police. You know, uh, you look at all the talk shows that are on, all the internet stuff, and they love finding every flaw that's known to mankind for the police, and they just, they'll exaggerate that to the hilt. They'll they'll make the police out to be evil. What does that say to young people? You know, uh, when I was a little boy, you respected the police, but I'm sure you've seen in the last few years, you could walk down the street in uniform and little kids are shying away from you. They're actually yeah. scared of you. Yeah. And there was also, like, I noticed a lot of a lot of parents, like, I used to, one of the things I hated that parents would do um, is is tell their kids, hey, if you're bad, I'm going to call the police. And I'd be like, yeah, it's the dude, worst that's, thing to tell them. that's your, if they're bad, if they're disobedient, that's your problem. That's not my, I don't come when they're disobedient. Like, I would get so annoyed with that. Like it was almost like this, like indoctrination that, Hey, the police are your enemy. Yeah. Uh, even at a very young age, if, if you're bad, I'm going to call the police. Um, and, yeah, and I mean, uh, it's, uh, it's, there's just so many things that paint the police in a negative light. And, um, I mean, you know, if you go on the internet, you can see all kinds of videos where you see the police are actually doing their job, but the um, the narration of that will be, oh, well, he could have done this. I mean, there's a lot of Monday morning quarterbacking. Right. And I've had intelligent people say to me uh, when when I was a chief here, when uh, the guy came at the officers with the knife uh, down on, um, on uh, Queen Street, and they're saying, well, don't you guys take martial arts? Couldn't he have kicked the knife out of his hand? I said, listen... Uh, you know, maybe that was good for a Bruce Lee movie, but, um, <laughs> you know, kicking the knife out of somebody's hand, that, that, that's Hollywood stuff. Right. And saying, well, you know, you could have, you could have done a judo move. I'm like, oh, you know, stop already. Uh, you know, people, 
people die from stabbings like they do from shootings. Not every homicide in America is from a handgun. A lot of them are from stabbings. Right. And to sit there and say, well, you know, you, you could have talked. Well, listen, it, you can talk to somebody until they actually are uh, planning to assault you. So, I mean, that's, like I said, you know, um, when I first came here, what I liked about this city with the media was the two newspapers. So you had two different, I mean, you're owned by the same company, but you had the New Era and the uh, Intelligent Journal. Yeah. So it was like, it was kind of nice because you got two perspectives on things and basically they they were almost on the same page. And, you know, um, as the years go on, it's almost like, and I, I'm just going to pick on Lancaster, but you pick any city, Philadelphia, when I was a boy, there were three major newspapers in Philadelphia. You had the Daily News, the Bulletin, and the Enquirer. And you had several neighborhood papers. You had the, the Philadelphia Tribune, which was uh, um, the black media, uh, because, you know, in the early days, uh, blacks weren't allowed to be in the media. You know, they didn't have black reporters. So the Tribune's one of the oldest newspapers in Philly, and it's still there. But the uh, major mainstream media, there's only one newspaper here now, the Enquirer. So your print media comes through one source. And that's, mm-hmm. for a lot of reasons, money. People don't buy papers. You know, everything's online. But unfortunately, what that's evolved into, pick any city USA and there's one voice in the media. Right. So if that particular voice is liberal, you only get a liberal perspective. If it's conservative, you only get a conservative perspective. And that's bad on every level. I mean, the, the best part about what the way the news used to be, they report the news and you decide how you process what you're hearing. But, you know, pick any kind of news or any news cable. Basically, whatever you're watching, they're telling you this is the way you need to think and this is what we're reporting. Yeah. And that's sad because you should be able to watch any news source and decipher through what is BS and what is legitimate. But the internet, like all those crazy websites, they're the worst place to get. And that's how rumors start. And that's how I I can remember uh, even the the shooting in St. Louis, Ferguson. Uh, I remember, um, you know, the first day everything was, well, the guy was standing there with his hands up and the cop shot him in the back. Well, as it turned out, that's not how it happened. Right. But that's what you heard on the internet. And I remember telling my own family, listen, unless you get this from a very reliable news source, you know, you can't go by what Twitter is saying. And the worst thing, I think the biggest violators of spreading false information is Hollywood and athletes. And that's really sad. Yeah. Because in the past, you know, it's okay. Look, if you're in the public light, you're you're entitled to an opinion, and you should. You shouldn't have to be silent because you're an athlete or a, or a movie star. But but whatever you're saying should be accurate, right? And it should not be misleading. And that's unfortunately what we've seen too many times. Yeah. Remember, Spike Lee put out the address of the officer in Ferguson, and it wasn't the right address. He put some poor old guys, uh, and they were getting the guy had his house vandalized and the officer didn't live there so and this is a hollywood guy here's the officer's address i mean you could get somebody killed because listen 
any police officer that's in their house on their own time with their family and a crazed mob is about to come through your door, they're going to defend their family. I mean, that could have turned very ugly very quickly. But there was, you know, there was no repercussions for that. Yeah, hardly a peep. No. Yeah. Nothing. And yeah. That, that's scary. Yeah. And I remember the Ferguson. I mean, the hands up, don't shoot. That that brought on yeah. that whole mantra. And I remember, yeah, you know, when, when it came out, the DOJ came out and said that absolutely is not how it happened. But it's still caught on. People still still say it. And, and I, you know, I, I remember being on car stops in the city and I'd have these yahoos walk up, um, on me and put their hands up and go and be yelling at me, hands up, don't shoot while they walk past the car stop. Like I, like I was just going to pull out my gun and shoot them. Um, yeah. And uh, so I, I do think it, uh, you know, one thing I did want to ask you, um, on, on the episode is just, your perspective on the whole race issue in policing and obviously coming on in 1981 things would have been a lot different than they are even now and some of the things you experienced like before we went online here i was talking to you about the uh, 1985 black yeah. liberation move house where they you know dropped the bomb on and and that you know i've, I've read articles on that but just generally if you want to touch on that black liberation bombing because you were on the job when that happened yeah but also just generally like what your experience has been in law enforcement when it comes to, you know, uh, race and yeah, just your perspective on that. Yeah. The, the move, they were like this back to nature, or at least that was their front that they were back to nature and they believed in living off the land and they wore the, the dirty dreadlocks and the whole bit. And some of them had been black Panthers in the late sixties, early seventies. And some of them evolved into this move and, um, you know, a lot, a lot of them were able to kind of snow local residents into thinking that they were some really, you know, pro-black movement. And they really weren't. The neighborhood that their first house was in in West Philly in 78, they had that property for a couple of years. It was dilapidated. They threw garbage in the yard. They believed in nature and they had, you know, dogs and cats everywhere. It was rat infested. And basically, they they had a bullhorn, and they used to spew like you know, just foul language and curse at their neighbors. And that neighborhood was predominantly black, and there were a few. It was right on the edge of Drexel University's campus, and you know the neighbors complained to the city for years, and finally the city had enough of that, and they told them, you know, the house is condemned and. You know, they said, no, we're, we're going to stay here till the end and we'll die here. I mean, they really provoked it. And eventually the city went to, like, get them out of there and shootout happened. A police officer ended up dying. And, you know, they, the main thing that got captured out of that, which they all usually focuses on, after the officer is laying dead in the street and they took him away, the one uh, member came out and he surrendered and he ended up getting tuned up by like three or four cops. So um, out of all the bad things that happened there, they usually show that clip. And I'm not saying that was right, but emotions were running high. These guys had that house surrounded for a while. It was a detail that whole summer. And that was a couple of years before I came on. So a bunch of people got arrested 
there's a documentary now where like the two parents of the one kid doing the documentary just got out of jail and you know everything is still anti-police whatever and then they got quiet for a while and then they popped up at another house in West Philly, literally five blocks from where I grew up. And at the time, my mother still lived in that neighborhood. And they get a house, a row house, and they start doing the same thing. You know, got junky and trash everywhere, and multiple people living in there and, you know, violating all kinds of city codes. Like if you or I did that on that block, you would get cited and fined. And the city took a, well, let's just leave them alone. And they were under constant surveillance and the police reported there was an old railroad track in the park in my old neighborhood that divided West Philly from Upper Darby Township. And they were going down there pulling out the old railroad ties and dragging them up the street. And they said, well, the only thing you use railroad ties for is for fortification. They're planning for the next confrontation. And they literally built a bunker on the roof and the city watched them do it. The police wanted to stop that. No, no, just, uh, you know, no no code violations, just let them be. And now, you know, then that neighborhood is, is, is predominantly black and has been since, you know, um, the, the early 1950s. And that's the neighborhood I grew up in. And, you know, we're a proud neighborhood, the Cobbs Creek uh, neighborhood of West Philly. And I know people that lived in that area. And that was that street they were on was a nice, clean street. People swept their stoops, you know. Uh, kids set out and adults set out just like my block. That's how that whole neighborhood was. And they got tired of that. And they're like, when are you going to do something about it? And finally, when the city did, the plan was just, it was just horrible. Um, the day before, they detailed cops from all over the city. I was on a, It was Mother's Day. I was on a traffic post right up the corner of that street. And people from my old neighbor riding by, beeping the horn. People I grew up on waving, oh, you know, hey, what's going on? And the next day, I was back in my district, and I'm listening to it on the radio. And at one point, a construction company, a big construction company down there said, listen, you know, we can get a crane on the next block, a whole block over, we can swing that ball and we can destroy that whole bunker in like one sweeping move. And they said, we're not going to charge you what we would, but you know, the crane operator and his crew got to get paid. They wanted to charge the city about $6,000 to knock the bunker off. City said, no, nah, that's too much money. No, we're not going to do that. So the alternative was they end up dropping a satchel of C4 on it and it ignited the entire neighborhood and people died and it was just, it was a mess. And I went back the next, the day after that, I was on the detail again and it was disheartening. I saw that whole block singed and that the half the street behind it, I mean, just in, you know, it was just, it was just smoldering. I mean, it was a whole neighborhood and then it was empty. Um, and it was just, it was horrible. Um, and then to add insult to injury, the city on the cheap hired some developer to rebuild that neighborhood. And he was a crook. He ended up going to jail. And he built the city out of millions of dollars. The homes had leaks in the roof. And they, they had to start it all over, pay another developer to fix them. And there's still litigation going on. That was something like 36 years ago. And wow. Still things tied up in court over that. So... But um, that organization has made themselves martyrs for years now, and they have the sympathy of a lot of uh, 
people and, you know, the city and the police are a bad guy in, in both those incidents. But uh, believe me, like I said, I, was, I wasn't I was on the job on the first one, but I was there on the second one. And they they have another house now, and they seem to have kind of chilled that out, and they don't do the garbage thing anymore, and they actually live around the corner from where my grandparents used to live. Um, so... They're still around. I mean, a lot of them are, a few of them are still in jail and some of them have just moved on. But um, there were a lot of, there was a lot of blame to be put on a lot of people then. I mean, the, the whole thing was poorly planned and that whole thing could have been avoided. The minute they saw them starting to fortify the house, the police could have stepped in at that point. But by then they had armed themselves with rifles and everything else. They were armed to the T. Yeah. And it's a shame that children died in that because it's not the kids' fault that their parents decide to keep them barricaded in a house. And they tried to get them, like, at least let the children out. Nope, didn't want to do that. Yeah. You know, yeah. didn't want to do that. So, yeah, I think um, I, I, it's actually kind of a cautionary tale with some of the stuff law enforcement's dealing with right now, where I, th- I think there's like this, uh, this idea that we need to appease criminals. Like we need to, like we, we yeah. see a problem and we need to appease, 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 hoping that the problem doesn't grow. And usually when you're talking about criminals, it, it's a huge mistake. I yeah. mean, um, if you think about, and I always talk about Lancaster, Lancaster has 60,000 people that live here in the city. And if you consider that there is a very small number of criminals here, very tiny percentage of the population, so what that says is, you know, there's probably a hundred f- uh, frequent flyers. At the same time, what's that say about the other 59,000 plus residents of the city who are not clearly not criminals? So who, who are we protecting? I mean, we're right. supposed to be protecting those citizens from that group of criminals that burglarize, rob, shoot up a neighborhood, deal drugs. I mean... Um, but to sit there and, and constantly hear about, I, I'm more concerned about victims. You know, when somebody knocks an old lady over the head or does a home invasion and robs an elderly couple and beats them and they get arrested, I, I don't want to hear about how, you know, uh, you, you weren't loved at home and I don't want to, I don't want to hear any of that. I want to hear what's going to happen to the people that, what, what about them? What kind of free counseling are they going to get? They're, they're having uh, post-traumatic stress from being robbed. I mean, you know, what victims assistance group is going to address that? You know, I mean, yeah. it's like, I get it. There are some people that had a horrible life and uh, they were directed into a life of crime. And that, that's very sad. But uh, the victims of crimes and their family, a homicide, you know, you're leaving behind the family. What, a, what about that family? You know, uh, you cringe when deals are being made in court without consulting the victim's family. You know, I mean, I realize trying cases is difficult. It's it's never fun. And you want to make sure that you put somebody in jail. But sometimes, you know, the plea bargain happens. And, you know, uh, and the worst thing is when you see a criminal that has the funds to hire a high-end attorney and they're able to put a spin on that, and all of a sudden the criminal's like the victim. Right. 
So yeah, yeah it, it's it's official. I mean, people say, "Oh, the justice system is broken." Well, you know, it's the system we have, and I don't think it's broken. I think it's been manipulated so many times that you know the the onus seems to be on, like you said, let's worry about the criminal and let's you know re. You wish you had, could rehabilitate, and some criminals do do age out of crime, but that's not the norm. Right. Yeah. I, I mean, I think you bring up a great point about victims of crime because I, I think it was my, my wife, Lauren, like I would see, I see this stuff on the news and I get so fixated on the criminal and the cop who's being raked through the coals yeah. and, and everything. And my, my wife, at one point, she's like, no one talks about the victim. Yeah. No, like it's like the victim doesn't yeah. even exist. The victim doesn't exist. And I was like, that's actually a very valid. A lot of point. times they have the weakest voice in a court proceeding. Yeah. There's times when nobody consults them. Right. And that's, and you've been there. You've been in the courtroom when you see the victim's family, they're like in shock. Like, wait, what do you mean he's going to get eight to eight to 10 years? I mean, he killed my, my brother. Like, well, you know, well, the case wasn't strong. Well, wait a minute. How about consulting the victim? Yeah. You know, and you have to admire um, a prosecutor that says, yeah, I know this is going to be a hard case to, to try, but, you know, here's the victim's family. Like, I remember, I know Craig Stedman's pet peeve was burglars, and he was so right. He used to say, you know, I got a problem with uh, a burglary that happens when the homeowner's home. Because that can turn into a homicide or an assault, and to call it a nonviolent crime, the act of breaking in a citizen's house while they're upstairs sleeping, that that should be considered a violent crime. And he's right about that. And too often, uh, you know, burglars get such a light tap on the wrist. They're like, well, you know, I mean, they're not hurting anybody. Well, they are. Yeah. I mean, and again, back to the victim. If you've been the victim of a burglary. You know, people say, I want to move out of this house. I don't feel safe here anymore. You know. Yeah. So, I mean, it's it's very unfortunate. Uh, but you're right. The focus should should always be on the victim. Yeah. I'm at fault, too, because often I focus on yeah. the fact, like, sure. hey, you guys are, like, you know, demonizing this cop. He just did his yeah. job. And I even forget about the victim, you know, because I'm so yeah. entrenched in... in my side of things but yeah, it's it's difficult it's it's just you know being retired and seeing what the police are, are putting up with now you know it just it makes me feel really bad because i think man when i was a rookie officer i couldn't wait to get to work because there was a lot of camaraderie and you felt that the community supported you and that was a great feeling i mean my goodness I, you know i got a little snarky with my sergeant one time uh, and, uh, you know, he fixed my little red wagon. He put me on this footbeat on this corner where these kids were always acting up. I mean, it was like a punishment detail. And I said, okay, you know, and one of the guys said, hey, listen, you know, you were wrong. You know you were wrong. So just man up and just do your job while you're out here. And the sergeant, in fact, the lieutenant even came by and said, look, you know, you'll probably be out here a week and, you know, he'll, he'll put you back on your car. I said, all right, lieutenant, I'll, you know, I'll, I'll do my job. Well, I did. I figured, well, I got to be here for eight hours. So I chased all the drunks off the corners and the, and the, the little hoodlums, whatever. 
And man, like after the first day, every night, one of the citizens in that neighborhood was feeding me dinner. Yeah. Officer, come to my house tonight. We're making this. I'm like, oh, okay, great. So, and then it was funny. You know how I got off that beat? <laughs> A group of those neighbors called the captain's office and said, hey, this young guy you put out here, could we have him here permanently? And he thought, oh, this is great. So he goes and tells my lieutenant. My <laughs> lieutenant tells the sergeant, he goes, Oh, yeah, Sadler's getting all kinds of calls from the day. They want him out there. The next day I was back on my car. <laughs> it was like, wait a minute, that's supposed to be a punishment. He's got people calling in, asking <laughs> if he can have this permanently. And I'm thinking, yeah, they fed me pretty well out there. Yeah. So it wasn't bad. But yeah, I you mean, know, that's, I, I missed that for the younger officers because now, you know, uh, you could be in a neighborhood and if an, a citizen said, hey, you know, officer, come in and have dinner. You know, the thugs in the neighborhood might vandalize. Oh, yeah. What would you have that cop in your house for? Yeah. Back I mean, then, I, it was like an honor. It's like, oh, the, the officer that's making our block safe is having dinner at my. They were like competing with each other, you know? Yeah. <laughs> that's, it, it isn't like that anymore. I mean, at the very beginning of my career, I had a couple of families that would invite me into their house. I had one old yeah. guy, an old Italian guy. He would walk around, um, walk his dog early in the morning, all the drug corners, and he would find like these drug dealers would have their stashes hidden in different places. So he would find all their stashes. He'd take all of them. He'd carry this little like, uh, you know, like five shot snub nose 38 or something like that. He'd walk the neighborhood with his dog, take all the drug dealers stashes. They thought they had them hidden so well. Nice. Take them back to his house. Um, hide the drugs under a cushion in his kitchen <laughs> on a kitchen chair. And him and his wife would invite me in. They'd see me like, yeah, come in, have some cookies, give me some coffee. And then he'd give me a stash of drugs that he got over the last week and everything. Um, but by the end of my career, I had families like that, but they would, ne they, they, no. some of them would email me, um, but they would, they would literally not acknowledge me on the street. Like we had, we, I would, yeah. I would ask them, they'd be like, yeah, just, just pretend like you don't know us. Yeah. It's well, sad. I know when I was still the chief, we were on a block for something and uh, friends of, uh, of me and my wife's were sitting out on their stoop. And I purposely didn't go up and say hello to them. And they said, oh, I, I, you know, I know he was busy, but he could have stopped and said hi. And she said, I don't even have to ask him. He figured if he stopped in front of your house and started talking to you, that might cause you problems on your street. And he said, yeah, you're probably right. And they ended up moving off that block. I was so glad. I forget what street it was, but yeah. it was one of our problem a couple drug houses there and i was so glad when but i you know now 20 years ago i would have walked right up to them on purpose to let the their neighbors know hey these are friends of mine so if you bother them you can expect to see me right but times yeah. have changed so i yeah. said i would never i said hey i wasn't being rude but i would never jeopardize you like that and it's it's sad we have to think like that yeah yeah and i think if we like could turn it a little bit and i don't know Hopefully the pendulum swings the other way. I don't. I don't know. If I it think it will. I mean, history repeats itself, and like I said, there I've seen the peaks and valleys in my lifetime, and at some point, and what it usually and how it turned around in the late '80s and early '90s, people got so tired of drug dealers and shootings in their neighborhoods. It was like, we want the police here. We want more police. We want the police to do their job. We want you to let them do their job. And they banded together. And I think you're going to start to see that happen. And the homicide rates in the big cities are going through the roof astronomically. 
And again, you know, uh, the media is kind of like left that alone, which is sad because you're not telling people what's really going on there. And the seediest thing I've seen is big city mayors and police chiefs blaming the spike in homicides on COVID. Yeah. That is so seedy because, listen, in, in January, February, and March in a lot of big cities, they've had a huge uptick in homicides. And the weather has been cold in some of those places. Those are usually the three quietest months. Right. So if they're spiking now, God forbid what's going to happen in yeah. the summer months. Yeah. So to sit there and say, well, this is people pent up over COVID. No, no, it really isn't. What it is, you, you've, you've handcuffed the police, you've demonized them, you've demoralized them. And, you know, you're talking about defunding the police. Well, the criminals, they watch the news too. Yeah. They realize, hey, cops aren't allowed to do anything anymore. I saw a clip from Philadelphia where some officers were on a detail and the drug dealers were in their face calling them names and, yeah, you're a punk and you can't do nothing to us. And I'm thinking, yeah. And they knew there were being videotapes that are standing there taking it. So what's that say to those drug dealers? And they were drug dealers. They weren't like average. They figured, you know what, we can do whatever we want to the police. They can't, they were, we're untouchable. Because all we got to do is turn the phone on and, you know. So it's a shame. And, and until until communities say we've had enough of this nonsense and they realize that the majority of the police are there for the right reasons, at some point, and you know, politicians swing with the pendulum. As soon as it's fashionable to like the police and let the police do their job, some of them will be the first ones for a photo op and they'll be by the police station telling you know the cops how much they love you and all of that. But right now, it's not fashionable, so you don't see a lot of politicians, you know, um, uh, arm in arm with the police because, you know, they, they want to get reelected and, you know, it's an unpopular stance. Yeah. So, you know, and, uh, listen, when I worked for mayor gray, I had a mad respect for him and I know he was defense attorney and cops were leery about him at first, but I used to tease him and say, you know, the longer you've been hanging around me, you sound more and more like a cop every day. <laughs> And, you know, he let me run the police department, man. He he was great. He told me one time somebody said to him, oh, you got the police handcuffed. And he said, handcuffed? Sadler and his guys, they do whatever they want. He doesn't listen to me. <laughs> but he was joking. He knew he's like, basically, he, he let us run the police department. And, you know, uh, it was great working for him. And he used to come to some of the press conferences, yeah. but he'd sit behind the cameras. He'd say, I'm just here to support you. I'm not here to talk to the media because they would say, hey, Makos, you want to talk to him? <laughs> yeah. And that's ideal. And I mean, you know. Um, it's not like that right now. Well, I'll tell you that. Yeah. And I'll tell you, it's just really, it's really sad. Yeah. It's sad for whether whether it's Lancaster, Philadelphia, New York City, L.A., pick, pick a city, city anywhere USA. And it's it's really disheartening. And. The flip side of that is to still see some communities and some of them are in big cities where not only do they have the support of the police chief, they have the support of the the top, whether it's the mayor or the city manager. And you say, wow, you know, there's a guy or a girl who's not afraid to call it as it is. I mean, if you remember that police chief in Seattle that she ended up resigning. Yeah. She stood her ground. I mean, mm -hmm. she she stood up and I said, man, I had mad respect for her. Um, but 
you know, um, they pressured her out of the job. Uh, and she stood for herself. And she was an African-American female. And she didn't care what people expected of her. And, you know, I'll tell you, you know, being a black officer is not easy. I mean, in my career, you know, you're in a neighborhood and your own people call you an Uncle Tom and, oh, you're working for the man and that kind of silly nonsense. And I saw it all last summer, even here in Lancaster. Some of the black officers here took the worst verbal abuse. And I thought, wow, that is so, like, low. And it's just really bad to, you know... let, let me tell you something. The, the the black community has always been proud of your police officers. And the narrative that you see in the media, it, it is just not true. You know, they stick a, a microphone in the face of people that hate the police. So now that gives the impression, oh, you know, the black community doesn't want officers in there. So far from the truth. And there's a few public figures that stand up. Charles Barkley. You know, when he played basketball, he was a wild one, man. He was knocking people out and getting into fights, you know, outside of basketball. And But he said it. He goes, I want the police in my neighborhood. He said, that, you know, to sit there and say black people don't want the police in their neighborhood, it's ludicrous. He said, trust me, black people want the police. And it is true. Yeah. It is true. And it, it's very sad and very, very few people in, in the public will openly admit that yeah and i think it's one of the most disgusting things i've seen come out of the narrative is you have these people who don't live in these communities and they talk about <laughs> how the police need to be defunded and we need to pull the police out of these um communities and to me that is racist because oh, yeah. the the people that are living in these <laughs> communities these like uh, lower economic communities yeah. or or these black communities and urban cities yeah. th- if you go in there and talk to the hardworking people in those That's communities right. th- they will not tell you they want the police gone they will tell you no they we could use police. some more police That's right because you know and so it's just disgusting to me when i see like you know Reverend Al Sharpton and and uh oh who's that other well, big one I'll tell right you, now the He's most like, interesting thing that i always say this um Okay, so you want to defund the police. Well, I always say, well, yeah, you know what? We could do that if maybe all the celebrities and all the politicians that have armed security around them all the time, entourages, some of them, as soon as you, uh, you know, defund your security and you disarm the people that are protecting you when you go to the nightclub and spend $2,000 on a bottle of champagne, and then have them drive you back to your gated community with the uniformed security officer at the front gate. When you get rid of all of that, then maybe I'll want to hear your discussion right. a little more. Yeah. But I think it's so hypocritical, it you is. know. <laughs> and a lot of them, it's so funny how a lot of those celebrities and politicians have retired police protecting them. Yeah. I thought, well, you know, really, I mean, if you feel that strongly about it, then why do you have armed security around you all the time? Yeah, yeah. You know? Yeah. And, I, and it, it always it always cracked me up, too. You know, you brought up uh, some of these, you know, like, uh, sports players and stuff. LeBron James talking about <laughs> when he leaves his house, he feels like he's being hunted. And oh, I was, I, when I saw that, I was like, yeah. dude, that's your secure, that's your armed security detail following you. You're not being <laughs> yeah. hunted. Yeah. You got your detail following you in the paparazzi. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So. They, 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 it's, they, you talk about hypocrites. I mean, 
you know, a lot of these guys have contracts with Nike and, you know, they're making sneakers that cost some poor kid's mother and father $300. And it's made with like, it's made for like a dollar. People making less than a dollar an hour are making these sneaks. And I'm thinking, you know, if you're that concerned about, you know, <laughs> you know, uh, all the atrocities in the world, I noticed that you're getting millions of dollars for, you know, uh, having kids that really can't afford those sneaks pay just because your name's on those sneakers. Like that to me, is shady. I look, I, I, I wish. I wish I would spend money on something like that, especially to people endorsing those products like, uh, you know, stop already. Yeah. So, yeah, I think it's funny to people that want to defund the police. And I uh, trust me, I mean, the, the stereotypical like white liberal um, that lives in a, you know, a $600,000 home in a nice gated community is the first one to point out what they think the black community needs. That always infuriates me. I'm thinking, you know, if if you grew up in my neighborhood, you might have a right to make a comment on that. But don't tell me what my old neighborhood needs while you're sitting up in a nice, pretty, you know, very safe community. And, you know, you're not talking about defunding the police in your neighborhood. <laughs> you wanted to fund it down in, in my old neighborhood, but you're not talking about that. All those nice uh, suburban communities that border Philadelphia. I haven't heard anybody in those communities talk about defunding their police. They all want Philly to defund, but they're not talking about Bryn Mawr and Ben Salem and all those nice areas that border Philadelphia. So I always kind of laugh at that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it kind of circles all about back around to what we talked about at the very beginning, leadership and and uh, you know, to motivate. I think I think the biggest thing leaders can do right now in law enforcement to motivate their people is be out there with them. Don't yeah. you know, don't just make your guys do the dirty work, be out there with yeah. them. So, and I think you would agree with that and uh, definitely, you know, <laughs> Being a police leader, especially in today's climate, you're you're just one bad article or incident away from being fired. I mean, the mantra now in some of these cities, every time something goes wrong, fire the chief. Well, you know, that means you could go through four chiefs a year. I mean, right. it's kind of silly. Uh, but yeah, I again, there, there's still honorable people in a profession that do stand up for their men and women. And then there's ones that aren't so honorable. Yeah. And, and you see them in, you know, if you watch the national news, you see it all the time. And unfortunately, the ones that do stick up for their departments, they don't usually make the 6 o'clock news. That story usually never hits the uh, weekend news or the evening news or even the morning news. You don't see that. So, you know, there's there's police leaders that think, hey, you know, I'm just here to, you know, address the issues and pacify people and make them feel better. But that's that's not the job of a chief. Yeah. It's multifaceted. You have responsibility for everything. The citizens, the business, the officers, the politicians, the media. <laughs> it all comes at you, man. Yeah. So. And uh, the bottom line is the people out there that are screaming the loudest about how terrible the police are. Yeah. The the police will go and help them when they call nine one one. That's 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 the yeah. always the amazing thing to me. So you call nine one one. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter if you were arrested the day before. You call nine one one. The police are going to go and and help you. That's what's crazy about it. Yeah, so. you know, 
and one of the most positive things about police work, you know, I grew up in West Philly and I knew a few other neighborhoods, but once I got into the police department, for me, it was the greatest experience because I met guys and girls from all over Philadelphia and from neighborhoods I'd never been in before. And the beauty part, and that's why, you know, I, I get torqued up a lot of times when people make the assumption that every white cop is a racist and every black cop is an Uncle Tom. And I think that I got invited to white officers' houses when I was a young officer in neighborhoods that were predominantly white. And they didn't care, you know. And that went for the other black officers in our squad. We all went up, you know. And we're, I never had, you know, kibasi until I got on the police department. They're like... <laughs> What's, well, I said, those are some big hot dogs. Like, oh, kid, it's kibasi. You never had kibasi before? I'm like, no. And, you know, now I eat it all the time. But, you know, talk about it's a very uh, ethnic rich uh, city. And I got all over the place. In Philly PD, there is so many police organizations. Black officers have one, the Emerald Society for Irish, the Custodius Passes for Italian, Polish-American, Ukrainian-American, uh, Jewish-American, all these uh, Spanish-American, I mean, they all have groups. And, it, and, you know, when they have banquets, when we're not in COVID, all the other groups will send representatives. They all go to each other's events and support it. And I'm thinking, hey, listen, you know, everybody, you're human and you might have prejudices that maybe you never addressed or you don't know you have them. But, you know, when you're riding around in the middle of the night and you're working with a guy from a different neighborhood than you grew up in, everybody forgets what your last name is and what religion you are, or what ethnicity you are. That that all goes out the window because you're on the same team. Right. You know, and that's the way I always viewed the job. And I, really, it just made me a more well-rounded person. And yeah. like I said, I mean, it used to be fun when people would have something and everybody brought a dish, man. You'd have like, it's like being at the United <laughs> Nations, man. You're eating all kinds. And then when I came to Lancaster, you know, that the, um, uh, Glenn Stolfius mom and two of her other friends brought these cookbooks up to me because oh, yeah? they said, we know you think chicken pot pie is like the thing from Swanson's with the, you know, the pie crust <laughs> and all of that. That's not how it is. And they gave me the cookbooks and the, the Lap uh, Family Diner in Quarryville invited me down. And that's that picture I have with the uh, getting a ride in the uh, from the Amish lady in the, in the horse and buggy. And I have an apron on it says, um, I think it said legalize uh, pot pie. Oh, uh, legalize yeah. pot. <laughs> and, uh, and I was in uniform that day and they showed me how to roll the dough and cut it. And they make these big vats on Wednesday. And I always laugh about that. But yeah. They, they they were trying to get me used to Lancaster County cuisine. And uh, before you ask the question, everybody uh, from here always says, what's your favorite Lancaster County dish? And I have to say uh, the chicken corn soup, man. That that That's it for me. The, the moving company that moved us up here is local. And uh, he brought us a whole crock pot full of chicken um, corn pie. And, man, we tore that up for three days. And so... <laughs> Uh, for Lancaster County cuisine, that's in, you know, Chris DePato makes a mean um, yeah. um, chicken corn uh, soup. So that's, yeah. that's my thing. Have you have you had a, a shoe fly pie yet? Yeah, oh, yeah. I like that. Okay. That's uh, not my favorite, but I'll, not everybody makes it well. It's very <laughs> whoopie true. pies I like. That's always fun. I like the whoopie pies. and Yeah. You know, but I noticed, man, when I first came up here, I gained like 20 pounds because everything <laughs> in this county is starch. 
and carbs. I'm like, I got to start getting some fruit and vegetable in my diet, man. It's like, <laughs> this is eating's too good up here. Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, one final question. Sure, sure. What is the funniest thing you've ever seen or witnessed on the job? That's how we're going to wow. close this out. <laughs> man, let me see. There's probably like so many hilarious things. Uh, you know what? I'll just, <laughs> I'll say the most bizarre thing. I guess this is my favorite story. There was a, a municipal court judge in Philadelphia named Morton Kreese. And his name was spelled K-R-A-S-E. And they used to call him Judge Crazy because that's how you could pronounce his name. A really great man. I think he's deceased now for several years, but he used to be on the talk show after he retired. What what a great individual. I, I had an arrest once. Uh, me and my sergeant got called to a house, and the lady answered the door, and she said, my ex is upstairs. He dropped the kids off, but he doesn't want to leave. And, you know, he wants to get with me. And we're like, oh. So we, he gives us his name, and I don't remember what it is now. We call my sergeant says, hey, I'll say, Bob, hey, Bob, you want to come down here? Well, he comes to the top of the steps. He's butt naked. I mean, head to toe. Like he wants to rekindle the love with his ex-wife, and she's not having it. And we're like, my sergeant's like, come on, man, why don't you come down here and talk to us? And he got mad. He goes, you want me to come down here? I'll come down here. And he, he comes charging down the steps, and I meet him halfway, and now we're wrestling with the naked man. Not fun. <laughs> and I go to cuff him. My sergeant was great, this guy, Gary Russ. And he goes, he goes hey, uh, and this is how he talks. He goes, hey, uh, Keith, uh, you think we might want to let this guy get dressed before we, uh, you know, take him to jail? And I go, yeah, Sarge, probably a good idea. And he says, hey, buddy, you know, you think you might, we're, we'll treat you like a gentleman. And he's all apologetic. And now the guy feels so, you know, we let him get dressed. We cuff him up. So he's acting like a gentleman. The sergeant says, look, why don't you just hit him with a disorderly conduct and like M3 him so you don't jam up. The guy worked for like the streets department because you don't want this guy to lose his job. He's apologetic. The wife doesn't want any parts of pressing charges. She just wanted him out the house. So that that's what we do, right? So we we get to court and now he's kind of, he's still apologetic, but when it's his turn to speak to the judge, to Judge Craze, he decides, he goes, well, you know, I mean, Your Honor, I mean, you know, she was still, we were separated, but she was still my wife. And, I, you know, I don't know that they had a right to come in there and, and lock me up in the first place. Well, this judge blew a gasket. He stood up and he looked like Uncle Fester. He had a complete <laughs> bald head and he kind of sounded like him. And he got up and he goes, he starts screaming at the, the defendant. He goes, how dare you come into my courtroom and, and, that that is your ex-wife's the mother of your children that's her home and you violated that home and he goes and you dare to come in here and you question this fine young that young officer did his job and he goes an officer i want you to tell me what detective put these charges on here i can't believe he only put a, a disordered contact m3 i want to see that detective and you you sir should have been charged with assault and he's naming all these charges <laughs> and you're very lucky today i'm gonna let you plead guilty 
but you better not ever say one more word about this officer and your ex-wife. And the guy was, I'm sorry. Be quiet. He's yelling at him. And I'm sitting there. I don't have the heart to tell the judge, well, sir, my sergeant said we should put the M3 <laughs> on him and not hit him with like a felony and all this stuff. And I just said, yes, your honor, I'll, I will make sure I address it with the detective. And he goes, you have a nice day, officer, and thank you. And I'm like, that, so that's probably my favorite funny story. And I used to listen to this judge on the radio with one of the, oh, he was great. Yeah. I mean, the guy was passionate about it. And he was a fair judge. Right. I mean, I saw him do something with a young uh, prosecutor. And the guy was messing up the cross-examination. The judge stood up and goes, I went to law school with your dad. You know, I thought you're a sharp young man, but you're really screwing up today. Let me, and the defense attorney was a high-end defense attorney. He's laughing. He says, son, let me show you how it's done. This is how you do it. Okay, now, sir, when you were going, and the defense attorney didn't object, he's laughing. He goes, that's how you cross-examine a witness. He turns to, isn't that right, counselor? He goes, yes, your honor, you're absolutely right. And the kid, he, the, the, the prosecutor, he's turned beat red, and he apologized, and then he started, he got on his P's and Q's, and I said, man, that uh, that was, they should have had a TV show, show after that judge, so just in his that's probably my favorite funny story, man, and I, I swear, that was from like 1985, and it's like it was yesterday. Still, still remember That it. is fresh in my mind. That was the best judge i ever saw that's uh <laughs> yeah i i i can remember being in some judges courtrooms and having some really cool judges do some really cool things yeah but, you gotta love it yeah <laughs> cool well uh chief thanks so much for oh, coming on the podcast me, and talking telling uh your story kind of well i should say a very small part of your story a, <laughs> a guy like you as as many years on the job as you do you could talk for you, you probably have hundreds and hundreds of stories, but I appreciate you coming on and just uh, talking about how you got into the job, talking a little bit about some of the stuff you see going on in sure. the job and, and just your perspective and some of the things you've been involved in. And I appreciate your all your years of service. And I hope uh, oh, thank you. Uh, your Same retirement. Same for you, man. Thank you. I, I hope your retirement, your retirement. Yeah. <laughs> I hope your retirement uh, just keeps getting better. And I'm enjoying mine. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, but uh, I miss the guys. Oh, absolutely. I miss, I miss the friendships and the camaraderie. Well, that's a good but. thing about social media. I'm still in touch with all my friends in Philly and here in Lancaster. So it's like at least knowing what they're up to and giving them an attaboy yeah. and stuff. So. Yeah. Cool. Well, thanks for coming on. I really thank appreciate you, it. Thank you, man. Appreciate it. I want to thank Chief Keith Sadler for coming on the podcast. He is a cop's cop a guy who climbed through the ranks, leading himself well and gaining the respect of his peers and then the men and women he led. I also know he's a cop's cop because he agreed to be a guest on this podcast. Here's a guy who was steps away from being commissioner of the fourth largest police department in the United States and he saw fit to come on Diakonasa Cops Calling and speak with me and with you and I appreciate that. I think I'll try to have him back on again at some point because he can tell a very good story and he has lots of them, along with just having an excellent perspective since he started the job in 1981. During the episode, we talked about leadership, and I also touched on it during uh, the last episode. Law enforcement is in need of courageous leaders like never before. Don't get me wrong, there are some out there that are backing up their officers and leading from the front. I know some of them, but many are more concerned about keeping their jobs than serving their people. 
And that is what a law enforcement leader does. Serve the people in his or her agency and the people of his or her community. Many of the high-ranking leaders in police departments are political appointments. And depending on the rank, they can be fired or demoted by the political entity that appointed them. But make no mistake, law enforcement leaders, your primary responsibility is to the people in your agency and the community, not those who appointed you. What that means is that you need to go into those positions with your eyes wide open and fully knowing that at some point on some day, you will have to make the right decision, which will get you fired. It won't be the popular decision and it won't be an easy decision, but it will be the right decision. It may mean you get fired or demoted, but it will be the decision that is the best way to serve both the officers of your agency and the people of your community. And serving people means making decisions that actually best serve people, even if they don't realize it. Not decisions based on who cries the loudest. Not decisions based on empty platitudes and virtue signals. Not decisions based on what is considered politically correct on any given day, depending on how the wind blows. Not decisions based on what the media likes or what Mr. or Mrs. Millionaire Sports Player or Hollywood Star tweets, but decisions that best serve the community in which you serve and the people of your agency which you serve. Decisions that are made because you have expertise in the field and you know what needs to be done even if those around you claim to know what needs to be done, even though they never once spent a minute in a pair of duty boots or wearing wearing 25 pounds of gear and going from one unknown call to the next. Decisions made that serve the law-abiding citizens and not the criminals. Decisions that are made which will motivate your officers to go through walls for you. Decisions made that best serve. And that's the key here, servant leadership. You serve your people. One of my favorite leadership quotes is from Max Dupree. And he says, the first responsibility of a leader is to define reality. The last is to say thank you. In between, the leader is a servant. So let's break that down. Define reality, not tell people what they want to hear, but define the reality of the situation to tell the actual truth about the situation and then the why behind your decision based on that reality. This may be the moment you have to stand up for what's right, regardless of what it means to you. This is where you may have to address an officer's bad behavior because defining reality and holding people accountable will improve morale. Those that work hard will want to be around you, and those that are slugs will want to get away from you. That is a sign that you're doing your job correctly. Defining reality is about not ignoring the actual problem and actually attempting to deal with it with actual solutions, not nice sayings and pleasant platitudes that placate people. Next, say thank you. Always thank your people and let them know how much you appreciate them. You support them in their work, so let them know you appreciate them when they are doing a good job and back them up. And lastly, but probably most important, is be a servant. Servant leadership. Greatly lacking in law enforcement. Not what can I get out of this 
And what do I earn in this leadership role? But what do my officers need to succeed? What do I need to do for them to help them do their job? And it may be things that they don't even appreciate or don't even like. Again, kind of like being a parent. I may need to do things for my kids and provide consequences for them that they may not even like, but are training them up and trying to correct bad behavior so that they don't stumble and fall worse the next time or make a worse mistake the next time. What do I need to do to help them do their job? How can I serve them so they can do what they need to do? How can I make sure that they are okay and check in on them? And it also includes always being quick to apologize for your mistakes as a leader because you will make mistakes. I'm going to play two um, clips, two examples of my guest, Chief Sadler, modeling this quote from Max Dupree. The first is from WGAL News 8 in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, back in May of 2015 after a Lancaster City police officer was shot and injured during a warrant service. And people were upset that the suspect was then shot and killed as a result. This clip includes both a quote from Chief Keith Sadler and also the district attorney in 2015, which was Craig Stedman. And we have more live coverage of the officer shot. The Lancaster police chief says he's worried about police coming under fire. News aide Barbara Barr is live. Law enforcement has been feeling under siege in light of events that have been going on nationally. Confrontations with the public, criticism that police have taken. Well, just moments ago here in Lancaster, the district attorney and police chief staunchly defended the officers. It seems like everything that the police stand for seems to be under assault, including the equipment they carry. These days uh, that I've seen, you know, pushback against police officers, and, and believe me, when, when they do something wrong, we'll prosecute them. But uh, the vast majority of those officers are doing nothing but uh, respecting the rights of everybody, and they're protecting each and every one of us. Well, both the district attorney and police chief say that there will be an investigation into what happened. They do believe that the officers acted appropriately. Live in Lancaster, Barbara Barr, News 8. And here's the second from CBS 21 News in Lancaster in January of 2015 when students at Millersville University hosted a die-in. Demonstrations have been going on all across the country, including today at Millersville University. It was called a die-in. CBS 21's Chris Papps was there. He joins us now live in Lancaster County with more on this story. Chris. Well, James, the students that we spoke to today at Millersville University said that they don't feel that police treat African-Americans fairly. But the chief of police here in Lancaster City, who is an African-American, completely disagrees. These quiet students at Millersville University are sending a message. Seeing the injustices that are going on is just really heartbreaking. And to know that one day maybe I'll have a son and I have to tell them, tell him what he will experience in America. Today at 1230, a few dozen held a die-in at the school cafeteria. For four and a half minutes, they lay motionless to symbolize the four and a half hours Michael Brown's body lay in the streets of Ferguson with chants of... The students sounded off. Slavery is over in the sense that people thought it was. As in, oh, you can't chain us, but there's uh, institutional slavery now. It's a slavery of the mindset. It's a slavery of location. It's a slavery of education. It's on 
people that you know brand themselves as leaders for an entire uh, race of people have really done a, a, a great job at misleading uh, younger folks. Lancaster Police Chief Keith Sadler doesn't understand the student's message. With 600,000 police officers nationwide and millions of contacts every day, he says a small fraction of them turn out bad. And as much as African Americans, like Sadler, don't want to be stereotyped, he said police don't want to be either. In other words, he says a few unfortunate police incidents don't make a significant problem. Every person I heard say, oh, this justice system is unfair, the grand jury system is outdated. I, you know, I haven't heard anybody say a better process to go through. Now, Chief Sadler went on to say that Lancaster City Police do a variety of community outreach efforts to build stronger relationships with the residents inside of this city. And that includes cadet training, athletic leagues, and forums, especially with the NAACP, which he says are very sparsely attended. Live in Lancaster City, Chris Pabst, CBS 21 News. These are just practical examples of Chief Sadler modeling the art of defining reality in both of these clips. He also was thanking his officers in action by backing them up in these clips, and finally he modeled being a servant. He was not nasty or offensive in any of these clips, and he behaved professionally. In addition, for the second clip about the student die-in, he could have easily told the news agency he had no comment, or he could have provided some empty feel-good bloviation that made everyone feel good except the cops who worked for him. But instead, he chose to give a comment, and he put himself out there, and he defined reality while backing up his police officers. Police officers around this country desperately need courageous leadership. Leaders that are willing to lose their jobs. And I'm not lying about that. Leaders that are willing to lose their jobs and be demoted for their people as they pursue to define reality, speak to the actual issues, and promote actual solutions. Leaders that will motivate their officers to work, even at a time like this, simply by standing behind them and supporting them instead of kowtowing to keep their jobs. You want to motivate your officers? Define reality to them and the politicians above them. Say thank you to your officers and always figure out how you can serve them. All right, it's time for cue the dip segment the cue the dip winner this week is officer justin witten of the florence alabama police department on may 27th a suspect attacked four family members including three of his own children under the age of 10 with a machete leaving them with critical and severe injuries officer justin witten of the florence alabama police department along with other members of that police department and members of the Lauderdale County Sheriff's Department SWAT team responded to this call. Uh, The suspect's parents were also in the home at the time, and the suspect, it sounds like from some reports I read, possibly shot at them during the attack. Afterwards, the suspect then barricaded himself in an outbuilding on the property. The suspect would not surrender to SWAT after hours-long attempt for a peaceful outcome. Finally, tear gas was then fired into the outbuilding, and the suspect attempted to flee on foot before being apprehended. The suspect had been charged back in June of 2020 with burglary, escape, and drug offenses, on which he was out of jail 
on a suspended sentence, which according to Alabama law and my best understanding is, is some sort of kind of like probation uh, here in Pennsylvania. Currently, the suspect is charged with six counts of attempted murder, and I believe at least one of the child victims has been released from the hospital, and uh, the rest may, may still be in the hospital at this point. But at some point, a photograph was taken of Officer Justin Witten, who was at the scene and helped in the rescue and containment of the scene as SWAT did their thing. The photograph uh, of him was widely circulated on social media, and it showed him holding one of the little girl victims who had been at the scene. Whether she was injured, injured or just a witness to the attack, I'm not sure, as you can't see any injuries on this little girl in the photo. But while we don't know about her physical injuries, we know the fear and horror she must have felt during this event. I have no idea how long Officer Justin Witten held this little girl. Perhaps it was minutes, or maybe just seconds. But either way, in that moment, he was her hero. She felt the touch and the hug of someone willing to go into harm's way. Harm being done by her own flesh and blood. While she was probably a witness to many violent things in her young life, even before this attack had happened, she nonetheless was able to witness and feel something righteous. A man with a gun who wasn't there to hurt, but to help. A man with a gun who was willing to put it on the line for her like she was his own. A man with a gun who took a second or maybe minutes to hold her like a real father. A uniform and equipment that models power, aggression, and violence when needed, but that it's, but at the same time provides the safety of a hug for a small terrified child. So for that, Officer Justin Witten is this week's Cue the Dip winner. To close out, you need to know that for the next two weeks, the podcast will be on a break unless you are a top two-tier patron for Diakonosikov's Calling. For them, I will have an exclusive patron-only episode that will be released during the second week of the podcast break. If you don't want to miss that, you too can be a patron. Just go to diakonosacc.podbean.com and click the Become a Patron button in the top right corner. Do it now and get entered into our prize drawing for July and win some cool leather drink koozies made by my man, Gary Lowe, the man, the myth, the legend from episode two. That alone is a good enough reason to become a Diakonos, a cop's calling patron. Lastly, I was recently at an award ceremony for police officers, and it was great to see many old friends and fellow police officers get awards for amazing work over the past year. When I got home, I had a short conversation with my kids. The nuts and bolts of that was that some in our country have an upside down idea of what a hero is. I see lots of silly and ridiculous things called heroic. I told my kids that I wanted them to understand that on this night, at this award ceremony, they were standing among actual heroes, officers who won awards for amazing work and investigations and leadership. Real heroes that kick up the dust every day. So for those who got awards, thank you for serving and thank you for kicking up the dust in pursuit of lawbreakers every day.